Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey everybody, welcome to another new episode of A Dying Light. I'm your host, Pastor Alex, and we are continuing our journey, uh, as always, through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been here for uh, quite a long time, and I think <clears throat> we'll be here for uh, the foreseeable future, which is totally fine. We've talked about that before on the show, that you know we're not in any hurry, and we're going to take this uh, section by section, and we're going to look at these passages in general uh, as they come up, and we will uh, handle the content that is there. Uh, after the Gospel of Matthew, I don't know where we're going to go. Uh, we might look at some Pauline letters, or uh, we might maybe look at Peter's or John's. I don't know yet. We haven't really decided the trajectory past Matthew. Um, we could just go back and really just kind of start working through um, the Bible in, a, in its entirety from start to finish. And uh, that could be something we work on. You know, there's there's plenty of content out there uh, that I don't see the show ending anytime soon, even though uh, a lot of the things that I have done under the Undying Light Ministries has kind of um, put in, been put on pause, mostly just because of uh, all of the things that are going on in my personal life. We are um, trying to rebalance a lot of things and place the emphasis in the right places. And that has seemed to uh, set down some of those spinning plates, if you would, for the ministry side. Um, but that's really, again, solely the undying light side. Nothing to do with my church. My church is the one that's, you know, takes uh, precedence over everything that I do. Anyways, that's just me babbling. Um, we talked, I think last week or the week before, I don't remember when it was, I kind of gave you guys a little bit of a precursor to my book. I am still working through it. I am in the process of talking to a publisher and I have no significant updates there yet, but, uh, hopefully within the next few weeks, I'll get an update and see if this is something that they would want to pursue. Uh, I am going to hopefully work on finishing, <clears throat> if not tonight, but this week. 
um, the current chapter that I'm working on, which will be uh, the examination in the Old Testament of passages that are dealing with law-gospel distinction. And so that's my goal is to have that chapter wrapped up this week and then start focusing on the New Testament side. Uh, we've got, I, I have anywhere between 8 and 10 examples in, my, in mind. Uh, a lot of it depends on content and length. And if I am finding that I'm really hitting longer writings on the examples, then we might bring it down to eight examples instead of ten. And really what it comes to, too, is if this book becomes popular and people do like it, then we can always come back and put more uh, more stories together and, and work through those concepts. And really, um, what I've kind of found as I write this is it's kind of like a uh, an early glimpse into a sermon that I've written. Um, and I, I think it's kind of a unique take on those. Obviously, there's the distinction of law gospel that's being worked through, um, but it kind of reads as uh, I've written some of my sermons in the past. So I think that's kind of a neat uh, contribution to this. And like I said, we could potentially go back and do more passages if this particular book does well and uh, people enjoy reading it and really want to have more, uh, we could do more stories. So that's the kind of the crux to it all right there. Um, I really have no other updates, honestly, at this point. So let's get into the material. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to begin with the 22nd verse. Uh, this is where Jesus is going to walk on the water. Uh, it is only a few words that he speaks, but a lot of it is the reaction of the disciples and uh, Peter's words here. So, uh, again, I preached a sermon on this a few weeks back. If you are interested in the sermon take, you can go to our church's YouTube channel and find it there. And we can um, go, you know, you can watch my sermon preach there if you need, you know, help finding it. By all means, DM me. And I'll get you the link if you uh, care enough to listen to that sermon. But here we go. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. Beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when his disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out onto the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. All right, I love this passage just as much as I love pretty much every other passage in Gospel of Matthew, it's fantastic uh, depiction of, of just the the scope of one's faith. And I think, you know, each passage has a very different, unique uh, aspect to it, whether it's 
the demonstration of God's mercy, God's generosity, God's love for his people, uh, the grace uh, that he demonstrates, or it could be, you know, an example for our faith, the magnitude of our faith, and really the consequences of our doubt as demonstrated here in Peter. So, you know, this passage has kind of a lot going on in it if you start to really unpack it and really examine it in its entirety. It's not just Jesus walking on the water, which is a miracle in of itself. Don't get me wrong. It is a wonderful uh, demonstration of his command over the elements. And I think, um, you know, interestingly enough, if I were to take this passage from my Calvinist days, I would really focus on... Um, you know, the, the, the walking on the sea and having the commanding of the elements and potentially even maybe uh, Peter's heart hardening a little bit. Um, you know, that, like, that would be my approach to this passage. But what I'm really, what I see here is so much more depth to it. And, and I think that's one thing that the Lutheran faith has really helped me to appreciate and, uh, and to really accept is that there's much more to the passage than you know, the a presuppositional that's read into the passage. And while, you know, having a passage that kind of deals with the attributes of God being, you know, having um, dominion over the land, the wind, and the seas, uh, you know, that is a miraculous portion in of itself, but it shouldn't be our entire focus for a passage. Uh, just as when Jesus goes out and calms the raging storm from the boat that he was asleep in, uh, he shows his command over the elements, over the you know the wind and the rain and the t and the and the waves. Here he is showing his command over you know water, which obviously we know can't hold a man. Um, so it, it, miraculous in of itself, but that shouldn't be our entire focus. The focus really kind of more or less falls upon Peter. So let's dig into this passage and see what is going on. So immediately, this uh, emphasizes the events in, um, it, or you know, emphasizes the key events which uh, Matthew obviously writes in his you know letter here, uh, in his gospel take. We we see it back with the baptism of Jesus in Matthew three sixteen. We see it with the first call of the disciples, Palm Sunday. Uh, there are some healings that take place in chapter eight and chapter twenty. So immediately is a word that really is demonstrating, you know, the emphasis on a particular time. If you rewind your minds to last week, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. And this is now concluded. These great crowds are fed immediately after all of this takes place. Jesus dismisses the crowds. He sends his disciples off. He sends the crowds home. He goes up to the mountain and prays. By himself. So this is, uh, you know, an important construct to the, the ongoing story. Now, Matthew doesn't always write in this, in this format that, you know, event, event, event. Um, you know, he doesn't say this took place immediately after this, because as we looked at, in some cases, Matthew uh, doesn't chronologically give the, you know, the series of events that take place. And so sometimes there might be a gap of time between such and such event. But here between the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water, we have an immediate transition. And so this is more than likely as we'll see here in a moment, 
um, after the prayer that Jesus has prayed, and this is going to take him, you know, well into the night that he's praying. And who knows, he, he, you know, the, the walking on the water may have taken him a few minutes to get there too. So bear that in mind too, that Jesus just didn't go up to the mountain, said a three-minute prayer, and then vacated and jumped on to the water and started walking. More than likely, he was up there for a considerable amount of time, probably hours praying. And so that is something to keep in the back of our minds as well. So makes the disciples um, go to the other side. So this is to the northwest shore of the sea. Uh, this will be the plain of uh, Gesserit. And uh, that's where we will see um, the healing of the sick here at the end of chapter 14. And again, it's just a couple of verses. So we'll probably tackle that at the end of the chapter here. Um, so he goes up on a mountain or again, a hill. This could have been the same place that he was probably teaching or praying. Um, and there are several of these hills in the area. So Jesus may have been on the same one or he pre, you know, preached to the, to the crowds, fed them and then dismissed them and then kind of made his way closer to the coast of the sea and went up on a mountain. Not real specific, doesn't really matter, but you know, we should play note, pay notes to the, the fact that there are many hills present, there's not one named hill. So, you know, for all of those who are seeking some sort of religious connection with Jesus, uh, you, you could probably pick any hill in the area and you'll be okay. Um, so Matthew's report that Jesus is praying by himself suggests an important moment in his ministry that is going to take place. Uh, Luke often notes that Jesus prays at significant times in his life, as indicated in Luke 6, 12. So Matthew is kind of starting to kind of corral us, if you will, towards the cross. And what we'll see unfold in the coming chapters is that, um, that the journey to the cross take place. And we'll see in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, we'll see, you know, Jesus praying and we'll see that command to his disciples to do, to stay awake and stay alert and they don't. Um, so the notion of praying by himself it indicates a very significant changing uh, of pace, if you would, from what he has been doing to what will be taking place very soon. Um, so he's a long way away. Uh, John reports that they had rode somewhere about three to four miles. So this is, again, a considerable chunk of distance. Um, and if you think about... Uh, how fast you could walk a mile by casual walking. You could probably do a mile in, we'll say 12 to 15 minutes. We'll say 15 minutes for easy math. So if you go three miles, it's 45 minutes. If you go four miles, it's 60 minutes. And, you know, so you've got about an hour or more of walking. And let's say, you know, you had to come down from the mountain and then, you know, get out to the coast and then walk. So he, you know, could have added another half a mile to a mile or more in that transition. So, you, you, you know, an hour to two hours of walking makes perfect sense in this situation. And the reason I say that is because I want to place the emphasis here on the dismissal of the crowds, probably in the late afternoon, and his praying to God the Father by himself, which is going to take a considerable amount of time. Because the text now tells us that in the fourth watch of the night, which is the early morning of the next day, this would be a 3 to 6 a.m. time period. Uh, and, and so let's say 
he starts his endeavors at 1 a.m. So he's preaching during the day, takes that break, dismisses the crowds, goes and prays, and he could be praying from anywhere from 5 or 6 p.m. till 1 p.m., and then he proceeds to walk out to the boat uh, and reaches them around 3 a.m. And the fourth watch isn't very specific. It's three hours. It's a segment. The Romans divided the nighttime into four segments, three hours each. And so it could have been closer to 6 a.m. by the time Jesus finally reaches them, which means he would have stopped praying sometime around 4 a.m. So Jesus is pouring in a lot of time into this prayer. And, you know, and I think that's a significant thing to hold because, you know, we as Christians love like the speedily actions of the world, right? We, we want everything to be boom, 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 boom. Uh, we have microwaves that instantly cook our foods. We have drive throughs where we can instantly order and pick up food. Um, we, we are a instant gratification society. And uh, prayers are often treated like that. We want prayers that are less than a minute to two minutes long. We don't want to devote time to praying to God. We don't want to pour time into lamenting towards God for something in our lives. We want instant gratification. We want to say, God, help me in this situation. Boom, done. When in fact, we could be you know, benefiting from having time dedicated to prayer. Uh, if you go back in time and you look at like the reformers, or you look at any of the early church fathers, or you look at really any pastor that has weight in, in, you know, in his ministry, um, and I would even say worth his weight, um, any preacher uh, of that caliber would, would be honest and say, you know, prayer life is a struggle, but they devote themselves to praying, whether it's in the morning or in the evening, so much allotted time per day. And that could cover a multitude of things. They could be praying for the congregation, their family, themselves, health, and, and all of that. Um, and they could have a number of things to cover. And I'll always admit as a preacher, that's the hardest thing I think I struggle with is having committed, uh, dedicated time to my prayer life. I pray more kind of in the, you know, on the fly, right before I go to bed type motion. And, and I don't often think too deeply of it. And that's a, that's a challenge for me as, as a preacher in the ministry is how can I demonstrate a role, a role in life dedicated to praying for my church and my community? How can I show the emphasis and the importance of that to my congregation? And so that's the challenge that I've, I, you know, I'm taking on myself to face. And I think it pays us well to see the commitment that Jesus takes to prayer and how important it is for him. And we, we don't get every, you know, not every text is, is met with him praying, but we see it enough and we see him sneak away enough times and we see him, you know, praying with his disciples enough times that we know prayer was important to Jesus. And we see Paul praying. We see Peter doing it. We see all of these disciples and apostles. We see the early church building upon this, uh, this theme of prayer that, you know, it really kind of echoes what Paul writes to be praying uh, with thanksgiving and supplication without ceasing. Now, that doesn't mean we need to be praying 24-7, you know, around the clock for a whole year, continuously praying. But what it means is we continuously are bringing the petitions to God before, 
before, you know, until we get an answer. We continuously bring those petitions. We don't just pray it once and then let it go. Oh, I prayed about it. You know, we're, we, we pray and pray and pray. Now, I'll kind of give you guys a little bit of insight into something that I'm praying through right now is do I want to look at, um, a, you know, a chaplain position, you know, in addition to my, in, to, in addition to my church ministry? Do I want to find a role around me that I could continuously demonstrate my love for the community and pour that into folks, whether it's in a hospice situation or, or, or elsewhere? And so I'm praying through this and I'm asking God for guidance. I'm asking him to shine his light and, and, and illuminate my path because I don't know what, what and where any of that is, but for whatever reason, the last couple of days, it's been placed heavy on my heart to consider something in that realm. And, uh, so there's, there's other reasons and weights being, being pulled that would cause this, but this is one thing that has been just, uh, over and above, you know, placed upon my heart. And so as a preacher, this is something I'm praying through. And until I figure out what's going to take place, I'm going to continuous, continuously pray about it. And I'm going to pray without ceasing until God provides me an answer or the Holy Spirit gives me the guidance that I am seeking. So prayer is always one of those things in the Christian life that is the most easily neglected, but often the most needed aspect to the Christian faith. And prayer life is exceptionally important. And, and I cannot stress that enough that each of us needs to find a committed time, even if it's 10 minutes in the day. Find a time that you can dedicate to the Lord and pray. And you'll find over time that that prayer time may expand and it may become more important for you to get up earlier in the morning and sit through a series of prayers. Or it may be time, you know, with the kids to when before they go to bed, like I pray with my daughter every night before I put her to bed. And we pray through our prayers and we are thanking God for all of the things that he has blessed us with and asking for his protection to continuously give us this daily bread that we seek. So prayer is vital. And I know that's not the whole point of this passage, but I find it, you know, as I work through a particular passage, uh, certain things just kind of jump out at me. And I think it's something that needs to be stressed and demonstrated in today's show, the importance of prayer. So he prays by himself, and now he's walking uh, on the water for a considerable amount of time, and uh, his disciples see him at the fourth watch, again, anywhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., and Jesus is walking out to them, and he reveals his divine nature when he made his presence known to his disciples in this manner. Again, we can sit and harp on the attributes of God, and we can talk about how he has dominion over the sea and all of that, and that's good and well, but I don't think it really gives the emphasis to the passage that the passage needs. I think there's greater things in this that we can pull out. For instance, the prayer, which we just talked about for like 12 minutes. So, um, so the reaction, interestingly enough, is not, hey, there's Jesus. It's, ah, there's a ghost. <laughs> Shimmer me timbers. There's a ghost out, out on the water. And again, this is one of those things that uh, these guys are probably exhausted, they're tired, they're wet and windblown, the sea is beating them into submission, they're terrified, and then all of a sudden they see Jesus probably glowing while walking on the water. He's not wet, 
He's not getting tossed to and fro by the wind. He is walking calmly like you would walk, you know, on a spring day through a garden. I mean, just perusing on out there. And so I, I'd venture to say that's probably a pretty easy reaction for them to, to be like, what in the world is happening? And so he he reveals to him to his people uh, this this kind of notion, and and I think here this really plays well into um, the the re, the revealing of his divine nature, because when God reveals Himself to mortals, we tremble, and that's indicated in Exodus three six twenty eighteen and Isaiah six five, and so anytime Jesus demonstrates, you know, the, it, it almost is like we just don't know how to comprehend it. And we'll see a little bit of that in the Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Um, but we see that perfect here, whereas they 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 are scared, they're petrified. It, it is a ghost. They cried out in fear. And so as Jesus demonstrates his divine nature, the disciples fear. And Jesus says, no, take heart. It is me. Do not be afraid. Jesus speaks a word of encouragement and self-revelation. It is I. Uh, the Greek is ego imaya. Uh, God made himself known to Moses using similar words. I am who I am, Exodus 3.14. Uh, and then he says, do not be afraid. This is the first, uh, three, first of three scenes, that I should say, where Peter's role becomes prominent. Uh, we see it later on in 16, in the verses 13 through 23, and again in 17, 24 through 27. Peter's request here in this passage uh, exhibits in impetuous yet genuine faith. If this is you, Lord, then then command me to come out on the water, if it is you. Or a different translation, since it is you, an expression of Peter's faith. So I think that really matters heavily. And, and here's kind of some of the things that I'm finding the more and more I get into you know the ministerial life is translations matter. Because the, the changing of how words are interpreted from Greek to English uh, can have a, an impact on the passage. It doesn't change the meaning of the passage, but it can change kind of the scope of it. And, and this is what I'm saying. If it is you, that means that G, there's a, a, a little bit of doubt but faith in the question. If it's you. But if it's not you, then, then, then we're really in, in deep trouble. But Lord, if it is you, then let me come walk on the water. Or a better translation would be, since it is you. Jesus, I know it's you. Since it's you, command me to come out there. That is a huge demonstration of faith. So Peter's fear results in his failure as he walks out on the water. So he knows that it's Jesus. He walks out and his fear encapsulates him. And he begins to drown. He loses focus on the object of faith, that being Jesus Christ. He fails to concentrate on that, and he begins to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me. Peter's shout for help repeated the disciples' prayer from an earlier storm when Jesus was asleep in the bow of the boat. And so Peter is surrounded here now with his doubt, and he begins to sink. He's probably walked, a, 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 maybe not too far, but he's, he's probably got 10 or 15, 20 steps maybe, maybe more. He maybe has you know, 20 or 30 yards from the boat. He doesn't really tell us. It just says, uh, Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water and comes to Jesus. Again, we don't know how far off Jesus is, 
But we have to know that it's a considerable distance. Peter has taken steps on top of water as Christ has commanded him to do so. And in the first few steps, he's, you know, he's beelining to Jesus. His eyes are on him. He's focused. And then he begins to allow doubt and fear and, and, and encompass him. And he begins to sing. And I think that's a great example for all of us in life. Because it's it's one of those things, especially like in the modern Protestant church. Uh, I'm going to pick on them a little bit here. Just Protestant in general. That this there's this like over overzealous zealous for God that takes place when somebody first becomes a Christian. Uh, we see that especially in the youth ministries where, you know, everything's driven by emotions. And so we, we, we are over emotionalized towards God and everything is hyper Christianity. Everything is, you know, on point, uh, and, and over emphasized. And then something happens whether it's a little bit of persecution, a little bit of blowback, a little bit of, you know, life taking place, uneasy news, you know, maybe something bad happened, uh, sickness, illness, maybe even a death take place, uh, and and the person trembles and and falls away from the faith. And I think that's a easy demonstration of what Peter's taking place here when he is demonstrating, you know, that committed faith in the beginning, and then. You know, he sees the wind and he begins to fear. He's something, something hit him, and he caught and it causes him to stumble and fall. And so he begins to sink. And and you know, Peter is one of those that uh, demonstrates you know wonderful faith. Even though we know Peter gets wrapped up in in the denial of Christ three times, but then Christ restores him, and then more. Peter does make some kind of terrible mistakes here and there, but it, Peter's a great demonstration to how all Christians are, because I think we would all say in some scope, we are exactly how Peter is. Sometimes we are pointed and on fire for Christ. Like it, we'll see in Matthew 16, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And then he says, who do people say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. That right there is like Peter is just connecting the dots. He's demonstrating his prominent faith. He's just nailing it. And then two minutes later, he puts his foot in his mouth. Uh, we see Peter do that. And we do that ourselves. We, we, we say something so perfect, and then we shoot ourselves in the foot and lose sight of that. So here in the text, Jesus rebukes Peter for his lack of faith. Uh, Peter still has much to learn, but... Uh, he is slowly becoming that focal point, and we'll see how the early church really utilizes Peter as, as kind of the uh, emblem of faith. Um, Paul will have a run-in with him, which we'll see in the book of Galatians, where Paul makes a kind of a call out to Peter. And, and that's not a bad thing. Peter just kind of gets wrapped up in the wrong thing, you know, with the Judaizers. And... Uh, so really, people like to say, well, after the death and resurrection and the ascension, P Peter was, you know, on fire, which I would not disagree with. But Peter still is very human, and Peter makes mistakes. No, the, the apostles weren't perfect. And I think sometimes we may hold them in such a high regard that they're almost, almost as good as Jesus is. And I think we, we lose sight of 
the fact that these are men. These are fallible men. They make mistakes. They didn't make a mistake writing scripture, but they make mistakes in, in living their lives out as Christians. And Peter is a great demonstration of how every single Christian is in this world. He is he says the right things, and then he does the, the, the not-so-right things. <laughs> so that's kind of a common factor, if you would, for um, for the Christian life. And so Peter still has much to learn. It will uh, become evident over the next you know handful of chapters that we'll see. So upon Jesus' rebuke, the wind it ceases, and another um, evident of the divinely wrought miracle of Jesus controls the winds, he controls the sea, he controls everything. And because he's demonstrating his divine nature by walking, that's why we go back to the text on the ghost in verse 26, that he's probably glowing and emulating, you know, his divine majesty. Uh, another kind of slight foreshadowing to the transfiguration in Matthew 17. Uh, so they bow down and worship. Uh, they bow low as the translation is, or fall at one's feet. Uh, the disciples' expression for reverence for Jesus right there in the boat is actually striking. Uh, in their worship, they joined the Magi who honored the child uh, Jesus back in chapter 2, uh, the woman in 28.9, and the 11 disciples in 28.17 would also worship the risen Savior. Uh, the Son of God is their, you know, is their call for who Christ is when Jesus had previously calmed the storm. The disciples wondered what sort of man he was, and now they confidently confess that he is the Son of God. And we'll see uh, Peter echo this later here in Matthew 16. When Jesus reveals his divine presence to his disciples by walking on the sea, they can only con conclude this simple fact, you are truly the Son of God. As long as, as long as Peter keeps his eyes on Jesus, he's able to walk on water. But like Peter, we often look away from the object of our faith and focus on our own problems and doubts. Although we know the Son of God is with us and will provide for all of our needs, we still worry and fear. Jesus tells us, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. His powerful arm reaches out to steady us and guide us into his safe harbor. So that is the passage, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, again, a lot that we can say. We could probably talk about it for another 45 minutes if you wanted, but uh, for the time's sake, we're going to let you go. Um, these are not exhaustive deep dives into the passages. I mean, we can revisit this passage in two years and find something different to harp on. Today, it was prayer. Um, I think it just was something that needed to be spoken of next week and maybe something else. Uh, let's Let's just read these last few verses because next week we'll get into chapter 15. So verse 34, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gesserit and the men uh, of that place recognized him and they sent around to all in the region and brought to him all of the sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many touched it, they were made well. So this is, you know, again, a very important passage Um demonstrating the the, the mag magnificence of Christ in his healing abilities, that all it takes is the touching. So these people are flocking to him. They see the that, he, you know, the, this healer has come, and Jesus does not escape the crowds. He does not run away. He simply embraces this, and whoever touches his cloak are instantly healed. 
the sick are made well simply by banging into the touch of his garment. So uh, a very, very interesting passage, you know, one that's not often spoken of, but uh, one that has some serious weight to show the compassion and mercy of Christ being demonstrated, as well as his command to heal the sick simply by them touching his garment. Now, remember, he doesn't need to even need that for people to be healed. He can simply heal people from a distance, as he demonstrates throughout Scripture as well. So, uh, Jesus heals many who touch only the tassel of his garment. And sometimes today, we can ask ourselves, does God not permit both believer and unbeliever to be healed through medications that are derived from his creation? So what happens on the plane of Gesserit demonstrates Christ's exceeding goodness to all. Yet, because we know Jesus and trust him as our Lord and Savior, we thank and praise him for the multitude of undeserved favors that we receive daily. Does not mean that we will always be healed. Does not mean that no matter you know that by just simply praying that we'll be healed. It does certainly mean that we should be praying, as we talked about you know in this previous section. It does mean we should be praying. It does mean that we should seek Christ for healing. There's nothing wrong with that. That is the that is the whole crux to the Christian faith. So we'll leave it with that. We're going to hit chapter 15 next week, and uh, and we'll go on from there. So, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. It is Friday. Get your bus to church on Sunday and uh, partake in those sacraments. I hope you guys have a great week. God bless. We'll see you all later. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.